you please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to the book of Romans? Romans chapter number 9. Romans 9. I'd like to ask to have the attention of all the children in the room. You're going to help me this morning as we begin, as we start the sermon together. I have a a $10 bill right here in my pocket. This is not bribery for all of you parents that are thinking in that direction already. But I have a a $10 bill um, here this morning, and I, I wanted it to be a $50 bill, but... Tara took the last one of those, so I've got a $10 bill here for you. Just kidding, just kidding. And I want to give that uh, $10 bill to one of the children uh, in the room. So um, you can spend it on whatever your parents allow you to spend it on, video games or ice cream or Brussels sprouts, or you can be very generous with your parents and buy them maybe a gallon and a half of gas. Um, with this $10 bill. So um, I want to give this this $10 bill to one of the children in the room, and so the $10 bill is going to go to Luke Kilcup. Um, Luke is right there beside his dad. Luke, can you come up? I know you're surprised a little bit about this, but can you come up and get this $10 bill? This is for you. I'm messing up the live stream, people. I'll be back. Here you go, Luke. Your parents can tell you all about it. Now, a word of explanation. Why did Luke get the $10? Why didn't one of the other children in the room, why didn't Matthew or Riley or somebody else get the $10? Um, Why did Luke get it? I have more money in my pockets. Not a lot more, but I have more money in my pockets. I didn't have to give any kid any money, or I could have given all the kids some money today, but I only gave the money to Luke. Is that fair, or is that injustice on my part? In our study today, we will hear the Apostle Paul address some questions about what is fair and what is unfair. So we're here in Romans chapter 9, and today we're studying specifically verses 14 through 18. Romans is the letter from the Apostle Paul to the church at Rome, and, and, and rather than writing just about a particular need of the church or a particular need of, 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 a, of, a, of a member, he writes about the undeserved, unmatched, unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ, which is applicable to all of life. By this point in the letter, Paul has gone into great detail about the power and the heart of the gospel. He's already explained a lot of the ins and the outs, and he's even taken time to explain many of the assurances that the gospel has brought to us as Christians. And now the the Apostle Paul has begun to go into this section that that, that gives the defense of the gospel, chapters 9, 10, and 11. In chapters 9 through 11, he is teaching us about the tension between God's sovereignty 
and God's justice, about the promises to the nation of Israel, and about his plan for the gospel to go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. So I'm going to read from God's word this morning, beginning at verse number 1. Again, our focus will be today on verses 14 through 18, but let's grab a little bit of the context as we begin at the, at the beginning of the chapter. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race according to the flesh is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet been born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she, Rebekah, was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Friends, this passage is yet another sobering reminder that your eternal soul is not something to be taken lightly. If you are not a Christian, if you are not a follower of Jesus, these verses tell you about a God, the only God who can rescue you from eternal condemnation. And if you are already a Christian, which would be the case for many of us this morning, these verses remind you what God has done for you and therefore call you to worship and thanksgiving and gratitude and certainly to obedience. In the preceding verses, as we read this morning, Paul taught us that Israel's unbelief is not contrary to the promises of God. Israel's unbelief, degree of unbelief, individualistic unbelief, is not contrary to the promises of God. Likewise, in verses 14 through 18, Paul teaches us that Israel's unbelief is not contrary to the character, to the unchanging character of Almighty God. Here is the big point from Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. I'm going to repeat it a few times for us this morning. The sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice 
of God's character. So God elects people to salvation. The sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation, while believers will experience grace in their redemption. But nobody will experience injustice from God. God is sovereign in election and in his justice. The two do not stand at odds. So what of this sovereign justice of God? I'm going to give you all five points of the sermon at the beginning because that's how my week went with PowerPoint. First of all, God's sovereign justice is questioned. Look at verse 14 again. What shall we say then, Paul asks? Is there injustice on God's part? God's sovereign justice is questioned. Why would Paul ask this question? Paul had just stated that some Israelites were not going to be part of spiritual Israel. Not everyone who was an offspring of Abraham was an heir of the promise. God said in verse 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. The teaching that God unconditionally chooses to rescue some individuals, but not others. So Paul is anticipating the reaction of his readers, and he asks the question that is on everybody's mind. Is that even fair? Is God being just, or is God being unfair? The apostle is thinking about how opponents might attack the sovereignty of, of God in election, and, and so he addresses the elephant in the room. Is there injustice on God's part? That question has a little bit of bite to it, doesn't it? There is a real force in the rhetorical question. Is God sinful in his election of Jacob over Esau? Paul is, is quick to give his, his answer, by no means, or, or God forbid, or, or no way. Of course not. Because what could be more anti-God than God being unjust? God is holy. God is loving. God is fair. God is perfect. God is righteous. That's part of God being God. The idea that God could be unjust or have a degree of unrighteousness is just blasphemy. Psalm 48.10 says, As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Psalm 71, Your righteousness, O God, reaches to the high heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you? God is righteous. Some people might push back against election and say that election seems to do away with, with man's free will and, and say that it seems to, to cast a shadow even on the holiness of God by making him random or arbitrary in his, in his election. They might even say that since God had elected Jacob over Esau before either of those were born that, and had done nothing either good, that it seems just arbitrary by God. How can God do that? Is there injustice on God's part? If God decides, apart from anything in the human being, whom he will choose and whom he will not, how can that be righteous? That is the question of God's sovereign justice. Friend, do you find yourself questioning God's sovereign justice? 
you wonder how justice and unconditional election can coexist without contradiction? If so, you are not alone. Paul teaches us the sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation, while believers will experience grace in their redemption. But nobody will experience injustice from God. God's sovereign justice is, is difficult to accept. So Paul gives to us next God's sovereign justice illustrated. And we see this in verse number 15. Paul says, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. The Apostle Paul shifts from earlier in the chapter, shifts his discussion from the patriarchs to another period in the Old Testament history when he's talking about Moses and the Exodus. In Exodus chapter 33, we're not going to turn there this morning, I'll, I'll read a couple of verses for you from that passage. While on the Mount, you'll remember that while on Mount Sinai, while he was receiving the law, while Moses was getting the, the, the Ten Commandments, from, the law from, from God, Israel was below and they were making a golden calf to worship. You remember that. In response to Israel's sin, God slew down 3,000 Israelites who had participated in that false worship. It was a warning to all who had witnessed or who, all who else had been participating. God had the absolute right to wipe them off the earth, all of them, but he only condemned 3,000. All of them deserved condemnation, therefore any who received condemnation received it justly, fairly. On the other hand, anybody who wasn't condemned received mercy. Moses, you remember, intercedes for the people with, with God, and, and in his conversation with God, Moses requests that the Lord show him his glory, a bold request from Moses to God. And God tells Moses that all of his goodness would pass in front of Moses to proclaim to him his name, the Lord. Here's how it, how, it, how it reads out in Exodus 33. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, Moses says, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And then in verse 19 we read, and he said, God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. The words that Paul quotes and brings to the minds of the, people of the church at Rome as they read his letter. Paul pulls this Old Testament illustration out to make sure that we understand that he is talking about the very character of God. God is just. It is part of the very character to have of God's character to have mercy on whomever he chooses to have mercy. If you are an American citizen, when you recite the Pledge of Allegiance, you end it by saying, with liberty and what? Justice for all. 
But the reality of the situation is that that's the goal for justice for all. It's not always practiced. It's not always attained. It's not always experienced. We can point to American citizens who have, and, 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 non -American, and those who are not American citizens who are in America who have certainly experienced injustice. Christian, you can be sure that God is just. You may have been cheated on by a spouse, by law enforcement, by some other authority in this life, but you will never be cheated by God. God is just. He is perfectly just in all his ways. There is no injustice that comes from the hand of God. Verse 15, Paul quotes from, from, from Moses in the Old Testament, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, God told Moses. Those words, if read cynically, could sound a little bit like a bully or, or an arbitrary action by a ruler. But that's not the case. To claim that God is unfair because he has mercy on some is contradictory. The question, is God just through his choosing people for redemption? The answer is not that God chooses based on how the human will will choose God. Instead, Paul reasserts God's unconditional election of humans. He says he will have mercy on whom he has mercy and will have compassion on whom he has compassion. God has mercy on whom he has mercy. The sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation, while believers will experience grace or mercy in their redemption. But nobody will experience injustice. Having given them an illustration of God's sovereign justice. Paul next gives to us God's sovereign justice explained. He goes a little bit further in verse 16. He says, so then, so he's kind of drawing a, a somewhat of a conclusion. He says, so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, efforts, but on God who has mercy. Paul's reasoning goes like this. Are you saying that God owes salvation to anyone? Of course not. So, verse 16, God is free to give salvation to all, to some, or to none. God is free to give salvation to all, to some, or to none. It comes back to the mercy of God. An old Time preacher from years gone by, John Stott, said it this way. Paul's way of defending God's justice is to proclaim God's mercy. The basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. The way that God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. Mercy is an action by God to withhold judgment that is deserved. God is the initiator of mercy. He has to be. He's the only one in the equation that doesn't owe anyone anything. Nobody can say to God, you owe me grace. 
then it wouldn't be grace. If grace is owed, it ceases to be grace. The nature of grace is, is its freedom and its voluntary character. Nobody has a claim on God's mercy, otherwise it would no longer be mercy. So Paul's explanation of, of sovereign justice then is that grace is, is not justice, but it's not injustice either. Grace is in a category all by itself. Therefore, if, if anybody receives mercy, it's not unjust, it's not unfair. Nobody can accuse God of injustice for extending mercy. He's giving away something that nobody deserves to begin with. So mercy is, is not justice. We can easily see that. Mercy is not injustice. Mercy is non-justice. So to answer Paul's question from verse 14, is there injustice on God's parts? He says, no way. To ask another question, is there non-justice on God's parts? Yes. God does something outside of giving us what we deserve. If we understand our sin, if we understand the wages or the payment of our sin is eternal death, spiritual death, separation from God, if we understand that, then we don't want justice, do we? That would mean condemnation. God has provided justice that is not our own. We are declared just by God's Son receiving what we deserve and we receive what He had, what He is. If we, are to put into, if we are put into God's family and have received the transfer of Christ's righteousness to our accounts, that has been done completely and utterly by nothing less than the grace and mercy of God. Friend, if you've never experienced the mercy of God, you are right now. You are under the preaching of of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are in a room where the only way of salvation is being explained to you. That is grace. Don't be stubborn to God's kindness to you. Hear it. Receive it. Believe it. That's God's invitation to you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can be transformed from darkness into his marvelous light. You are invited to become a child of God. You see, for the believer, God invades, intrudes into our life with grace and mercy. We love to sing that song at harvest. I once was lost in darkest night, yet, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will, and if you had not loved me first, I would refuse you still. But as I ran my hellbound race... Indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. God makes us alive. He changes our heart from unbelief to belief. And then we respond by, by running to Him and trusting Him and loving Him. But just because God does that for us, is he obligated to do that for everyone? Jacob got grace. Esau got justice. But neither of them got injustice. God intruded, if you will. He invaded Jacob's life. 
but not Esau's. How about Paul himself? He's on, his, on, the, on the road to Damascus. Paul is known for how he had persecuted Christians, how he had, been, he had killed people. He had been so unkind and anti-God, anti-Jesus. And Jesus literally knocks him off his horse, blinds him, and called Paul to be an apostle. Paul didn't become a Christian while he was in the middle of killing Christians he de- and, and decided, oh, I just think of my own free will, I'm going to follow Jesus. God intruded. He invaded his life with grace. God intrudes. He invades the life of sinners, the elect. The Holy Spirit changes our hearts and makes us alive. God doesn't intrude in the lives of everyone, though. For some, he leaves them alone in their evil, in their sin. Friend, Christian, when you are tempted to call into question the justice of God, that should be a trigger for you to instead call to mind the mercy of God. You might think to yourself, well, my marital status doesn't seem fair. Instead, think, God has shown me mercy by making me a part of the bride of Christ. It's not fair that disease has taken such and such a toll on this person or that person or on my own life. Rather, think, God has given mercy by healing me of the disease of sin. When you are tempted to call into question the justice of God, instead, call to mind His mercy. Christian, God's grace has invaded your life. This changes everything for you. It changes your outlook. It changes your priorities. It changes your career goals, your financial goals. It changes your response to temptation. It changes your relationships. You were on the road to hell. His Spirit gave you life, and now you're on, your, you're on the road to heaven. That must be at the forefront of your mind. Friends, the sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation, while believers will experience grace in our redemption, but nobody will experience injustice from God. Wanting to make sure that we understood that it's not arbitrary, Paul now fourthly goes into this idea of, of God's sovereign justice purposed, or giving us the purpose behind God's sovereign justice. We're people that like to know the purpose, right? We like to know the why, Nobody wants to be part of a project without knowing the purpose of the project. We want to understand the purpose of of policies and practices and and relationships. And we want to understand what our employer is doing or what they are thinking or not thinking. We want to understand purpose behind things. Look at verse number 17. So Paul says, it depends on human will or exertion, but on God who has shown mercy. Verse 17 says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh... For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Paul tells us that there is purpose to God's sovereign justice. Pharaoh had kept the Israelites as slaves against their will, of course. And God raised up Pharaoh for a purpose. In fact, there are two that Paul lists in verse 17. To show God's power and to proclaim his name. The power of God. God set Pharaoh up so that God could show his own power. He was showing the world his omnipotence. 
There was no match for the power of God. The second purpose was for the fame of God. Don't we still talk about the ten plagues and the exodus of Israel from Egypt? Listen to these words from Exodus 15. The peoples have heard. They, trem they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes, seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants, inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. God raised up Pharaoh to reveal God's glory, his power, and his fame. Even God's negative action of letting someone continue in their rebellion serves God's purposes. Even God's negative action of allowing someone to continue in their rebellion serves God's purposes. We sing, this is my father's world, and though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. We need to remember that God's sovereign justice has a purpose. When we read headlines, and when we consider a nation's leader acting in evil ways to bring death and destruction on a neighboring nation, we must filter that news through the scriptures. God raised up Pharaoh for a purpose, and he has likewise raised up leaders in our world for purposes. This week, we lament that our own nation's leaders put forward policy and guidelines that stand in complete opposition to God's word in regards to genders of male and female. It is sick. It is vile. And it is godless. And it should be appalling to everyone who calls himself a Christ follower, regardless of who you voted for. And yet, even in this, we rest in the reality that God raises up leaders in accord with his sovereign justice. God's justice fulfills the purposes of our Lord. His justice fulfills his own purposes. The sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation. Believers will experience grace in our redemption. But nobody will experience injustice from God. And so that brings us to number five. God's sovereign justice is defended. Let me read verse 18 for us one more time. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God extends mercy to some so that the glory of his purpose is known to the world. He is free. God is free to give salvation to all the world, to some of the world, or to none of the world. And that brings us probably to the hardest question that we've had to cover yet. If God is free to give salvation to all, to some, or to none, then why doesn't God just save everyone? 
there are places in the book of Exodus that we are told that God is the one who hardened the heart of Pharaoh. There are places in Exodus that we are told that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Both are true because the Bible says it. So let me just do a quick rabbit trail here. If you're a young Christian or if you're an old Christian that hasn't yet learned this principle, here it is. If the Bible says it, that settles it. God's word is true. So it doesn't conflict with one another. God's word is strong enough, big enough, efficient enough, sufficient that when we see things in God's word, one says this and one says this, they can be worked out. Even if we don't fully understand it with our finite minds. So some of the passages in Exodus say that, that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and we read in God's word that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So what does it mean for God to harden a heart? It's talking about uh, being stubborn. It's talking about God, uh, about a sinner being stubborn or God letting them continue in their sin. We can think of Judas, who was appointed to betray Jesus. Being hardened of heart talks about being unreceptive and disobedient to God. Someone who is insensitive to God and his word, and if it is not reversed, and that person will be condemned, eternal death, hell. God is not the cause of someone to be insensitive to him, but sometimes God chooses not to intervene in that person's rebellion. The hardening of Pharaoh's heart was God allowing Pharaoh to continue in his stubbornness. Pharaoh had resisted God, and God did not intervene. Rather, God allowed Pharaoh to continue in that rebellion. God gave Pharaoh what Pharaoh chose. Pastor Keller says it this way. When God hardens someone... He doesn't create the hardness. He simply allows that person to go his or her own way. So God is not the author of sin. God is holy. God's action is to allow someone to continue in their rebellion. His action is to not invade their life with grace or mercy. God having mercy is an intrusion by God into the life of a reprobate. It's an intervention, if you will. But for the unsaved, there is no invasion by God into their hearts. Abandoning a sinner to wickedness is not an act of unrighteousness. It's perfectly consistent with God's justice. God says, if you want to continue in your sin and your rebellion, I will allow you to do that. God rescues some, and God passes over some. And inexplicably to humanity, this brings him more glory than if he rescued everyone. Here is where we need to land. Somehow, in the divine ways of Almighty God, and apart from our understanding as finite humans, God receives more glory by rescuing some but not all that he would receive if we were to rescue all. But I want to be quick to add, that's on God's side of the equation, right? That's God's decision. On our side, we are called to trust. 
We are called to go make disciples. We don't know. We can't understand with our finite minds all of the ways of God, all of the purposes of God, why he rescues some and not others, why he raises certain leaders up and allows deceit and and evil to happen. We don't understand all of God's purposes. But we do know what God has called us to, that as Christians he has shown mercy to us and that he has called us to go make disciples. When I gave away $10 this morning, at that particular time, all the kids in the room were behaving, at least from what I could see from here. And I have no way of looking into the future to see how they will behave the rest of the day. So I wasn't de- my determination wasn't on um, seeing what they would choose of their own free will later in the day. None of the kids in the room had to perform or earn the $10. There was no opportunity for any kid to, to uh, as Paul says, it was not up to their exertion, to, to exert efforts to gain the prize. Further, my selection of Luke to receive $10 was not arbitrary or random at all. I chose Luke on Thursday when I typed up my sermon notes. This morning, I chose to allow the rest of the children in the room to continue in their current financial situation. But I chose to prosper Luke's financial situation by giving him an unearned gift. I did not intrude into the affairs of of Matthew or Riley or Kate or whoever the other children are here this morning. I did intrude into Luke's. Friends, that's not injustice. That's just grace. That's just mercy. No illustration is perfect, but I hope it helps communicate Paul's teaching from Romans chapter 9. That the sovereignty of God's election does not conflict with the justice of God's character. Unbelievers will experience justice in their condemnation, while believers experience mercy in our redemption. But nobody will experience injustice from God. So what do we do with this knowledge? How do we respond with our understanding of this text? Christian, God has invaded us with his mercy. He has sent his son to make the way for us to the Father. This is the great motive for our flight away from sinful temptation. When we have God's mercy on our mind, we have firepower against Satan's attacks. When we feel that we have sinned too many times, Be reminded that though your sins are many, His mercy is more. Remembering God's mercy, it changes our priorities in this life. Remembering that God has has given to us what we don't deserve. He has withheld His judgment from us, judgment that we are deserving of. Remembering that will change our priorities of, of what we pursue in this life. It will change how we interact in our relationships with others. It will change the way that we love Him, the way that we love others. It will change the way that we talk, the way that we live, the way that we think. Understanding that we have been recipients of the mercy of Almighty God. We are indeed debtors to mercy. Christian, God has not dealt with us according to our sins. So let us go this week and live in light of that reality. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.